Hi, and welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brooke, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Bree, I am so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Absolute pleasure, Jules. I'm looking forward to our chat. (laughs) Me too. And I really want to know all about you because what you do sounds so fascinating. So let's start with that. Do you want to tell me or tell the people who are all listening what it is that you do now? What I do now. Because I'm I'm going to start with what did you do years ago very soon. Okay. So (laughs) I call myself the behaviour explainer. And really what I do is take the best of behavioural science into how people behave and I translate it into into terms that lay people, business people can understand. And so that means you get better conversion on, for instance, your website or on your email campaign or how you are engaging your stakeholders, your staff. So pretty much any interaction you're having with someone else where you're trying to influence them to do stuff, yeah, that's what I'm involved in. And is it, oh my goodness, I've just realised, I think I saw you speak at a Churchill, were you ever, did you ever do a talk at the Churchill Club? I can't even remember what it was. I did, I did. You did? I've just realised I saw you and I thought it was amazing then. So now I've got a vague idea what it is and it's not just language that you are interpreting, is it? No, it's um, any sort of uh, point of interaction point of interface if you want to use yucky language like that but anytime you so whether you're having a meeting with someone a phone call or an email anytime you are trying to convince someone else to do something different that's an opportunity to do it more effectively and behavioral science is sort of the framework that can can help you and so that's that's what I'm involved in Amazing. All right. I, I definitely. So tell me, why did you set it up? What, what's the problem are you solving? And yeah, what's your big why as to why you did it? My big why? I've really grappled with this, Jules, because behavioral science can be applied to anything and everything. And so I've found it really uh, quite, a, quite a challenge to work out what is my purpose. And to be honest, I'm still, I'm still grappling with it But because it sounds a bit wishy-washy, but here it goes. Go for it and, I'll, and then we can discuss. I think a lot of time in business is frustrating. So <laughs> you think you've hit the people, nail on the head there. Most people feel that they go to work and they come home feeling like they've hit their head up against a brick wall because whatever they've tried to get done hasn't got traction for whatever reason. And I have had that experience when I was working in the corporate sector. So... What I'm really interested in is giving people more freedom, more enjoyment, more, um, I, I say on my website, it's making life easier through behavioral science because it's really, if, if we understand how we are wired to make decisions, we can make things much more effortless and get, get rid of a lot of the frustration. And, and do you work a lot with people in sales? Because there is a woman that's part of our group, Julia Ewart, who calls herself the negotiator, specifically in sales, but it's all around the language and how to make it effortless by just asking open-ended questions instead of closed questions. And from that, the way that she teaches, by the end of it, you kind of have people going, gee, I really want to buy from you. Can you just tell me where, where I need to purchase? 
<laughs> yeah, there are some people that are more at the pointy end of the sales process, I suppose. I, I tend to be a little bit broader than that. Um, right. And also, it's not just the language you use and how you ask questions. It could be things like, where are you going to have that meeting? What right. are the environmental cues? What are you doing to prepare the, um, the setting so that you maximize your chance of influence? So for instance, if you go into, if you're having a brainstorming activity with your team, yeah. the behavioral science says that you should have it in a, a room with high ceilings. Oh, because really? people tend to think more expansively when their environment is supporting that. And so if you want people to be detail oriented, you know, put them in the little chicken <laughs> chicken pens, really yeah, <laughs> bring down the ceiling. But um, so behavioral science that I'm involved in is really about all of those different cues. And it's also about what's not said. I think oftentimes a lot of um, a lot of the advice we're getting out there is listen to your customer. And my approach is don't listen to your customer. <laughs> oh, I love somebody who goes against the grain. What do you suggest instead? Talk over them. <laughs> when I say don't listen to your customer, we're, we're curious beings, us humans, and often we don't do what we say we'll do. And right. so, and New Year's resolutions are a classic case in point in that. But we have a fairly weak um, understanding of what we will do in the future. And so if we ask people, if, if I design this product for you, will you buy it? People will give you what they think is a rationalized response, but they may not end up buying it. And this experience came home to me when I was, I was working in the corporate sector for White Pages, the phone directory. Yeah. And we were asking, this is the time of print, print directories. We would ask people, what would make you use the print directory more? And people would say, oh, um, easy. If you had like a schedule of which weeks I should put my bin out, that would be helpful because the book's on the counter. I'll just flip to it and say, okay, this week it's green waste and get on with my life. But the natural behavior, Jules, is very, very different. What do we do when we need to put our bin out? We walk up the driveway and we look at what our neighbors have done. That's exactly right. I've never, I thought I was the only one. So there's this, I call it the say versus do gap. You know, we say we want to buy Australian, but then we're in the supermarket and the Italian tomatoes are on sale, so we buy the Italian tomatoes. And so oftentimes when we're listening to our customers, they're giving us sort of a best case scenario. They're giving us their intended behavior, but that doesn't always end up in the real behavior. Right, so it's sort of the difference, the gap between your intention and, and your reality, I guess. Exactly. That's fascinating. So was there a bit of a light bulb moment that you had at some stage that made you think, this is it, I'm going to go and help people do this because I keep seeing the same mistakes? Yeah, it totally was, Jules. I, um, as I said, <laughs> I, was, happened? I was working in the corporate sector and, um, and we would commission a lot of research, like I've just described, what would, you, what yeah. would make you use the print directory more? So I'd be dripping in what you would call market research and data points, and yet... I wasn't getting the answers on what would really shift the dial. And so I was pretty frustrated in that sort of um, circumstance. And my brother happened to give me for Christmas a book called Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely, who's a behavioral economist. So predictably irrational. In other words, we are not rational thinkers. We are irrational and there are predictable patterns to that. 
And oh my goodness, I read this book and I thought that's exactly what we're missing. And cut, uh, cut, you know, 12 months, 14 months, whatever it was um, forward. And I decided to go out on my own because I could see a lot of these books were out in the marketplace like Nudge, but Predictably Irrational, Thinking Fast and Slow. But for business people, it was all still sort of all in the behavioural science wafting up in academia. and Theoretical there, kind of stuff exactly. rather than practical. So then I thought, oh, well, I can play a role in interpreting it and helping business people apply what great information is out there. So, uh, yeah, I think it's my 10th year in business now that I've been doing this. And I Amazing. Love it. Well, congratulations. 10 years is, is good. means you'll be sticking around. <laughs> I hope so. We've all been knocked around a bit this year, haven't we? Oh, my goodness. And well, well that brings me to who are your customers for this? This is a, a really, I mean, is it mainly corporates or are you working with entrepreneurs? What, who are your target? Yeah, that's a really interesting question too, Jules, because again, that's been um, a little bit difficult to, to work out <laughs> because it can be applied to anything. So ultimately- Ultimately, I do have a mix. I do have a lot of the big end of town um, and uh, government organisations, for instance, but likewise, smaller businesses who just want, for instance, the website reviewed or they want to have um, better, uh, for accountants, for instance, their letters of engagement that they're sending out to you know, uh, attract and retain their, their clients. Okay. So it can, really, um, it can really vary. I happen to write... Uh, quite regularly for smart company and they've got a skew towards small and medium enterprise and so I do um, a lot of clients find me through that work but um, look behavioral science can be applied to anything and I I've been across any sort of industry and any sort of organizational size and yeah that's one of the joys actually. Right. Well, I was going to ask you, can you give me some examples? But actually, let's just go back and find out about your career. Because I, my intention with this is that there are a whole lot of women listening, some who are successful, some who might be starting out. And I think, and, and I ask a lot of women about this, I think we're inherently nosy. And I love hearing the story of when I left school and wanted to grow and grew up, I wanted to be this and how in heaven's name you've ended up doing what you're doing because it's always an interesting journey so can you take us back to I don't know end of school sort of what what you would what you wanted to be when you grew up and how you've ended up being a behavioral expert and then I'm going to ask you for some examples because this sounds fascinating it is interesting isn't it when you look back on how you got to where you are because um certainly my experience of career counseling in high school wouldn't have um wouldn't have plotted this (laughs) path for me so out of university, I um, elected to do a double degree. So I majored in applied psychology and finance. So um, Interesting combo. Why? Because you were good at maths and you were interested in people or what was the, what was maths, the decision making uh, there? <laughs> hopeless at maths, okay at accounting. Um, and right. I know that's weird because there are... Yes, yuck. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose accounting I found more uh, applied. There was an application for it. I decided to do accounting because I thought that was a good entree to business. I came from... Was that accounting an actual subject? Accounting? Yeah. 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 At school? Yeah. What wasn't around when I was at school? Really? No. Yes. I ended up doing physics of all things and I'm so not a maths person, but I just loved it. And it was all about the teacher. I just loved the teacher and he was brilliant at explaining it and really enthusiastic. So what was your, so maths and psych anyway, double degree, interesting. uh, Not maths, accounting. 
finance. Accounting, sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anything but maths, although there's maths in everything because um, my first... Uh, my first experience of psychology was like statistics and um, biology. So it was like, oh, hang on, I thought I escaped that, but here it is again. Yeah, I did a psych major and I remember going, no one told me this was going to be about research and, you know, looking at stats. Yeah, I was like, when are we just going to sit and analyse people? <laughs> I want to do counselling. Yes. That was my thing. <laughs> um, so I, I opted for the double degree um, accounting for the pragmatic reason of getting away into business because my parents were both teachers and so I didn't really come from an environment where there were many pathways to business. So every business ends up with numbers and accounting and I thought that's a good fundamental skill um, to have and, you know, it, it, solid, solidly employable. Yeah. And But the other side was psychology because that's really where I was drawn um, and so the combination was terrific I couldn't have done one without the other even though it was wow, really even though it was really weird at the time I was the only one doing that combo and I bet it made a few scheduling challenges <laughs> but it, <laughs> look, it was fantastic um, so I drifted not drifted I, I elected to follow the accounting path into business so my first right um, job was with Coca-Cola Amatol, um, which was terrific. Um, I was obviously in my 20s and Coca-Cola was a, those were the days but, when you actually, it wasn't the toxin, <laughs> seen as the toxin. No, well, I mean, now. I think they were, and if I'm thinking of roughly the same time, maybe 20 years ago or so, they were voted best employer. They were like such a cool company to work for. That's right. Really aspirational and terrific. So they gave a lot of responsibility to us very early. So that mm -hmm. was terrific. So I spent five years there, started in finance, moved into human resources. Um, right. So I was starting to let the psychology emerge or the interest yeah. emerge. And um, during that time, I also completed my CPA because I thought that was almost a finishing point to my finance career, perversely enough. So I wanted to have that under the belt. And, and no, that's good. That's a, that obviously shows you're somebody who likes to finish something before you move on to the next. And, and also, you're right. I mean, it's a great qualification. It would always guarantee you a job. But yes, exactly right. Recessions or booms. There's always accountants. Uh, <laughs> that's sure. right. I think in in good times we tend to rebrand accountants analysts. <laughs> and yeah. In recessions, everyone's back to being an accountant. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and so I had a, a good year working in human resources and learning and development at Coke. But then I decided to to leave, and I was looking for work in human resources actually because I was trying to follow that path more. I ended up though working as a publisher or a product manager of human resources books. So for interesting, Thompson, interesting Thompson little sideways move. Yeah, well I applied for the HR role and they said, you know what, instead of the HR role, how would you feel about being the uh, the publisher of the books that HR people read. So that was terrific. That was the first I'd heard of product management, product development as a role. Right. Um, and I had a, I loved the creativity there. I was able to sort of shift the assumptions around how a book for HR people is written as opposed to accountants, for instance. So instead of thinking that accountants and human resources people will typically absorb information in the same way, yeah. introducing, for instance, more conceptual um, imagery and more quintessentially right-brained 
um, ways of engaging that market. Yeah. So I really love that. It was a terrific. Um, and did you see customer. results? I mean, if you're the product manager, presumably part of your responsibility is the sales. So did you find when you did that shift that people were coming back sort of saying, now it's really useful? Uh, anecdotally, yes. But uh, <laughs> I, what I also found within the organisation is that the cash cow was our finance portfolio. And that's where right. all of the sales activity was driven. So I, yeah. I suffered for, well, there were a couple of things. Um, difficult to get sales resources to back my products, which when you don't have end-to-end -end responsibility for for the um, P&L, it becomes quite difficult. Right, yes. So that. You had to, so you had to learn to be more persuasive. <laughs> I, I, yes, I guess so, because it was almost like I'd have to beg and borrow just to... Go into battle. Just to um, get them to pick up the phone and call the market. So it was really difficult. And the second thing I noticed about that market particularly, this might be a bit controversial, but I found a lot of human resources um, professionals were quite defensive in in putting their hand up and saying, yes, I need a subscription or I need reference materials for this part of my practice, um, because ah. that's, a, that's almost um, an admission that I don't know my stuff, which is right. so different. Right, so just showing weakness. They don't want to show that vulnerability. So that, and very much in contrast to the accountants who are like, oh, we need that, you know, bring it, bring, on. Bring it on, because, and I, my, my theory, Jules, is that, because people don't argue with accountants. You know, you can be an accountant in the boardroom and no one takes issue with what you're saying the numbers are. But yep. if you're an HR person or a marketer, anything that is uh, in inverted commas uh, soft skills. Ephemeral, yep. Everyone else thinks they can do your job <laughs> because we're all human. Oh, I love you. I love you so much. I, was, I did new business for many years and honestly... People think, and I have friends who do it as well, and people think that it's just taking people out for lunch and having a lovely time and it, that if, you know, if, they, if you weren't doing it, they'd still be getting the sales because it's their brilliant product. It's nothing to do with the fact that you're telling people about it. Hilarious. That is brilliant. And I think both those professions, or, or perhaps PR as well, um, there's perceived low barriers to entry. Yeah. Yep. Because again, we're all human, so I can have an I can have an opinion on a marketing campaign. I can have an opinion on how people are performing. Um, There's no definitive right and wrong. There's no sort of numbers that are either exactly. correct or incorrect. So my my positioning of behavioural science to people in soft skills roles is that this is your opportunity to say this is not my opinion. There is science behind my decision. Behavioural science. Yeah should be the equivalent of accounting standards, but for those in the soft skills. And I keep saying soft skills, soft skills are the hardest of all. So <laughs> I know, I don't know where they got the name soft from. <laughs> it's, it's terrible because every, every business I think lives and dies on the, our ability to interface or, you know, the soft skills, the quintessential people yeah. behaviors. Um, yeah, so that was my time as a publisher. And then I moved to white pages, so census and was in product management there also for five years. So I did 555 and then I broke out and uh, have, have, have started And was it own. literally that? Were, were, there, were there personal reasons as well? Did you just go, I'm fed up getting out of bed and going to a job I hate? Or was it really around, I want to develop these skills and there's a gap? I'd started whilst I was at Census. Um, I had a 
a manager who agreed to this. I started doing a nine-day fortnight. So okay, and that was purely because I wasn't being intellectually stimulated or engaged through my work, and I felt that there was something more to do. So that's when I started writing for Smart Company on behavioral science. I wrote my first book called Twenty Two Minutes to a Better Business, and I really started. Um, that was nourishing me. And meanwhile, right. Census was really getting um, knocked around by Google. Yeah. And so it was, it, it was uh, starting to be an uncomfortable environment in that, you know, we were not in growth like we had been. Right. And the ultimate irony being, of course, that they now specialise in soft skills and really they've just turned into sort of marketing for business, haven't they? these days, census? Census? I really haven't been following <laughs> what they've been yeah, doing. Yeah, no, so they've turned into a company where they help small businesses do marketing, okay. which of course is an extension of where they thought they were, I would imagine, and, and going forward. But isn't that hilarious considering what you were just saying about the soft skills and how little they valued them? Well, yes. I mean, and, and the soft skills, well, I across think the board, it was across I the guess. board. I think it's just um, something that most businesses... Um, are negligent around, I think. Um, yeah, so, so... So you went out on your own. Tell me about how did you get your first client? Like, how did you define what it was that you wanted to do? Because obviously behavioural science, as you say, could have applied to anything. You could have taken that anywhere you wanted to. So um, how did the first client happen and, and what was that I project? I was so naive, Jules. I really was. <laughs> I, um, what was I doing? I, I was actually working part-time for a friend's business in a different capacity. So for the first three months, I sort of left the corporate role and I had that as almost um, as a, a safety cushion. net, a cushion for sure. Yes. But that um, also wasn't great because because I had the cushion, I wasn't really accelerating my business. I was right. half in, half out. So um, finally, when that wound up, it was then, oh, I really have to make this happen. <laughs> Apply myself now. And the other thing that was happening at the time, I was doing a charity walk uh, of the Lara Pinta for Indigenous community volunteers. It just right. happened to coincide. So some of the work I was doing, I was doing some speaking gigs and what have you. I was, I was putting it under the banner of a charity fundraiser. And so right. that in retrospect was a strange way because what what I think I was doing because I was straight off you know from a corporate salaried perspective I could not work out how to value my myself and my services and so well, it, isn't that interesting that I bet that that's a, a huge thing for everyone how do you price it and and all you can do is go and look at what other people are doing and if you're doing something groundbreaking you got nowhere to go I found that really difficult. I couldn't really compare myself to anything else. And um, that meant that there was little competition, but there was also not an expressed need for what I was doing. No, well, I know that feeling from trying to tell people about PR and the benefit of doing it yourself. It's a, it's, it's a very, very long and tortuous process to try and create a new niche, really. It is. And then, yes, trying to articulate the problem from the, your client's perspective that will mm. resonate, I found really difficult. So for the first, I'd say, three years, I was really not, I was not, I was underselling myself, under, underselling my value because I, I pretty much, when I first started, this is embarrassing, but I sort of said, oh, what was my hourly rate in corporate? And it sort of needed to be about that or, you know, 
or half even. <laughs> it was extraordinary when I... Because I haven't got the whole company behind me rather than going, actually, I'm going to be able to do one-on-one and give you yeah, all this dedication bespoke. <laughs> low yeah, but the, um, the problem there psychologically for myself but also the client is that um, if you don't value yourself, how are they going to value you? So lessons learned there, but um, I still grapple with, you know, with pricing and and um, where to peg it and that sort of thing. I think it's really does. hard. And I also think there's something as a woman, I don't know whether it's true or not, and you'll probably be able to tell me, where we are softer, basically, and sometimes someone comes along and I just want to help them. And, you know, you kind of go, oh, money be blown. It doesn't matter. I just want to help this person. But unfortunately, we do it time and time again because, and I did it for years with PR, years and years and years. Yes, I'll give you an hour here. Let me just give you some contacts. I'll just help you here. Absolutely no perceived value to my product, basically, (laughs) you know, in terms of monetary terms. So true, Jules. And I think it's all wound up together with this um, perception of likability and we've seen it with our female politicians you know they're okay if they're second in charge but as soon as they're in charge then they're not likable enough if they assert themselves and and what have you so I I, I'm sure there is something in that Uh, whether we are socialized obviously well I shouldn't say obviously I don't know that it's innate in us but we are socialized but, uh, but I hear it time and time again and, um, and I guess if I just apply it to myself and I can only assume that really that's what you were doing in the early days, you know that you can make a difference. And the flip side is, you know, they can't afford you mm. and, or, or that they can't afford a lot of money. So if I'm going to help them, I'm going to have to do it for either nothing or next to nothing. I think- um, and maybe I can use it as a case study. And of course, yes. if you haven't charged them, they often don't actually implement what it is that you've told them to do. Exactly right. And, it's, um, and so you don't get that testimonial either. <laughs> it's known as skin in the game in behavioural terms. So if people don't contribute something, if they haven't sunk a cost into it, so that's either money or their time, then it's it, often, for instance, we don't take free advice because it's free. So, uh, yes, it is an important signal. Pricing is an important signal. I think product ladders for that reason or service ladders, whatever you want to describe them, are uh, as uh, important because then you might have, so for instance... What's a product ent- ladder? You might have an entry-level product, so I don't oh, know. Oh, like a sales funnel, I think they call it. Are you talking about coming in at $17 and then 49 and then... Something like that, for sure. So for instance, um, when I was doing more website reviews, I don't do them so much anymore, but for instance, I had a the $500 offer, which was... Um, different to the $1,500 offer, which was different to etc. And so you have places for people to go. So if you do get any um, concern about budget, you can say, well, I can't reduce the service, but, you know, we can drop. You can go down a level. You can go down a level. And that sort of forces the choice rather than them bargaining with you and trying to do that. um, So I think that can be a really useful tactic because then it gets out of the ickiness factor of you, yes. of you making the decision for them, they are really making the decision around how much they want to spend and for what yeah, value. Yeah, and I think one of the, in, in terms of pricing, one of the smartest things that I ever did that I sort of realised that I had a value was, and somebody said, why don't you just charge people if they want an hour of your time to brainstorm or whatever, how much would you charge them? And the moment I put a value on that, that was the moment that I realised if I was helping someone for free, I was giving them that amount of money for nothing. It's so different, isn't it, when you start to think of your time as money? And yeah. uh, I still 
I think it's after so much time in the corporate sector, I still struggle with that. So I do have to. And plus, I'm the type of, I'm at my best when I'm reflective, when I tend to take time on things. And so I do not want to charge people by time (laughs) because that's not... But 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 it's funny, isn't it? Because that is you're literally saying to me that you don't value your reflection time, which is the time when you're probably coming up with the ideas. That's right. And they bloody well should pay for it. Exactly right. It's um yeah, that's where the genius happens. And yet yeah, people do want uh, tend to want snippets and what have you. The other there's some psychological tips on pricing if you're interested in those. Yeah, please tell me. So the first well, tell all of us. I forget it's not just me. <laughs> No, it's just between you and I, um, Jill. Yeah. <laughs> so the first principle to, to know is called anchoring. Now, anchoring means that we the first piece of information we get, we anchor to. So that then becomes a reference point. So, for instance, imagine a tradie is coming to your house and they yeah. could just say, Jules, it's going to be, I don't know, five grand for this work. And you'd be stuck with the question, well, is that good or bad? I don't have a frame of reference unless I then get other quotes. Whereas if this tradie came to you and said, Jules, I did a job similar to this last week. Um, it was around seven grand. But for you, I think we can bring it in at five. <laughs> you are brilliant. Straight away, I know you're brilliant. Yeah, how much, what a huge difference that makes. And we're used to anchoring. I mean, you see it in retail a lot, don't you? This jacket used to be $200, now it's $99. I've just saved, <laughs> saved myself Yes, $500. Money. Woohoo, aren't I clever? <laughs> That's right. So always when you are introducing price to people, anchor to a higher value. Now, most commonly it's going to be a different price point. Yeah. As I just described with the tradies, but it can also be something different. So with accountants I've, I've worked with, you could say, oh, well, Jules, your portfolio is worth $5 million. <laughs> I wish an accountant would say that to me, but yes. Your portfolio is worth around $5 million, so our fee to manage that is going to be two, two grand. And you go, whoa, look at that price difference. It's, it's, you know, it's a fraction. So we've anchored you against a number that isn't necess- it, it's not directly um, relative, but it is in your brain you're going, oh, that's a big number, and now you're introducing a little number, and I'm making it feels so much better for me. But so let me ask you um, on that point, because I think it also needs to be relevant to the person. And I'll give you an example. So when I first started Handle Your Own PR, we would compare our fees to an agency and we'd say instead of paying $36,000 a year, you could just pay $3,000. And what and I didn't get any traction on it. And I remember thinking, why are people not going for this? Because it's just such a huge saving. And then someone said to me, well, do your customers use agencies? And I thought, <laughs> well, no, that's why they're coming to me. And I just thought, I, th- I thought that was a real revelation for me, that there is no point, I guess, anchoring, to use your language, to something that is just not going to be relevant to your customers and don't make assumptions that if they were at the big end of town, they'd be paying this, so therefore at, at the small end of town, they'd be paying that because they, they're not, you're comparing apples and oranges. That's a great tip, Jules. I think you're absolutely right. Um, so, yeah, if people aren't used to paying that and they haven't ever used an agency, it's never crossed their mind to use an agency, no. then you have to find something else to anchor it against, in which case you can, again, reintroduce your, pri- your product letter. So instead of yeah. saying, Jules, um, 
we have one service, uh, our service, which is end to end, and it's you know full concierge, and that's going to be eight thousand. But what we've talked about, I really think you'd be looking more at the five grand product and, yeah. and all that sort of thing. So that's how you would um, contextualize your value, and that's that's the key: contextualizing your value so that you feel good, but also your client feels good about the commitment they're going to make. Yeah. Wow. That's incredibly. So that's really, really useful. So now that we've gone into some real examples, have you got, have you had anything spectacular happen or because I bet you have where you've gone in, done maybe a small adjustment or told them to speak about something in a different language and it's made a huge difference? One of the... (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking about putting you on the spot. (laughs) One of the challenges, Jules, is oftentimes in order to say what difference the work makes you have to have a baseline okay and you um, can anchor it for us if you like (laughs) (laughs) yes i mean in terms of um you would really need to set up a trial so for instance if we were redoing a letter we have to send the version of the letter which is the control so the unchanged letter and we'd have to send that the scientist in you coming out we'd have to send that to a sample of people and then we'd have to choose another sample of equivalent people to send out a a revised version of that so this is a long-winded way of saying i don't have any gangbuster stats it's not something (laughs) no no i'm not looking for stats i'm just looking for a story of a company that maybe was struggling at some stage with an aspect of their business whether they were big or small you don't have to name them but um that that you found that there was something that they could be doing in their language or whatever that made a difference you know and it and it has made a difference and you oh, can definitely. tell me to buzz off like i don't have to keep pushing you <laughs> no, there's one organization that i had a lot of work um i was really pleased to work with them so we started with uh, a couple of days of training so people were i trained people in the techniques and then we worked on letters together and, and I right. had some coaching to support them through that process. And it's made a massive difference to, for instance, what inbound calls they're getting because the letters used to go out and they were, you know, written in an overly bureaucratic, uh, not user-friendly way. And so people would call up and go, I don't understand what this is about. And they'd get panicked. And it was a, a miserable experience for, for everyone miserable experience for the recipient of the letter miserable experience for the agency that was sending out the letter and so and i know people find letters boring but letters are so powerful emails these days i would think even more so because hardly anyone gets any so send something through the mail that's well written exactly right yeah yeah. and it all when when we say well written i think it even starts at the first principle of what do you want the letter to achieve and i think so many organizations miss that they they think oh we've got to send a letter to people but what are you trying to get them to do as a result of that letter do you want them to do nothing or do you want them to do something so and and if people want tips on that they can i've got a very very short book called the little book of letters and emails which they can download and it, it just goes through the principles of this do you use passive language do you use active language do you um what do you use in your subject line those sorts of cues because right the- oh well that sounds like it could be great for all my pr people too because they all have to write an email to the journalist yes to get the journalist to open it so i spend a lot of time with them working on you know how what the language should be and what they should say great um can you tell people where they can download that from if they go to my site briewilliams.com.au 
they will find all my books and you know lots and lots of free resources as well so um oh amazing they'll, they'll pick you. up a lot of information but i think that's we've sort of just hit on the other beauty of behavioral science is that you were going to do these things anyway you were going to send the email out you were going to send the letter you were going to you know have the meeting so we're not talking about a new widget or a, a massive new expense for the business it's doing what you're doing but just doing it more effectively and that's the magic of it that's the clincher that's the clincher Right now, so now I'm just going to ask you a few more broader questions, just, you know, being a woman in business. Um, and I, and I, the first one I'm going to ask you, I'm, I'm asking of everyone and there doesn't, there, there isn't necessarily a correct answer for it. But I think because we are about talking about women in business to women in business or women that are thinking about their businesses, and my motto is lift the women up around you. Um, I, I just wondered if there are any women that have really helped you along the way that you would like to sort of tell us the story of someone who's made a difference because especially if you worked in corporate land because I haven't been in corporate for many years but there are many, many stories of women that can be very horrible in that space. So um, she says nodding. <laughs> but have there been any women that have been fabulous? Uh, yes. Do you want me to name names? Or? Yeah, why not? Give yeah. them a shout out. Look, um, I worked with and am now friends with a lady called Melissa Reynolds at Census. Yeah. And um, Melissa is a very senior marketer, but broader than that. She's worked in customer experience. She she was my manager at White Pages. And um, yeah, I've just really enjoyed how our corporate relationship me as a um an underling has really developed yeah. and thrived as i've moved out of um out of that role and she stayed in touch absolutely and um yeah it's been a really lovely flourishing relationship i think well i mean and and while we're on that note do you think it makes a difference to have women that you can confide in that are also in business a, a significant um significantly Jules yeah I think something Melissa did for instance when we we're at White Pages she started the women in white um, women in white group and so she acknowledged and has been very um, uh, assertive I suppose or, or yeah been on the front foot in trying to bring women together and move I'll us forward as a, as a group because I think it takes that senior leadership to really yes, capture I would think especially in a big organization to try to you need you're looking you are definitely I mean this is where there is a definite hierarchy and you are looking up at ro and role modeling the person above you and if they are inclusive and warm and you know community minded then you're going to have a very very different experience to somebody who I'll never forget my first job was at the Herald Sun and I won't name names, but there was a woman there who clearly did not want a 20-year-old coming in as management <laughs> and told me if I said anything wrong. She said, in my previous job, I was a psych, a psych nurse and we used to put women's heads down the toilets if we didn't like them. <laughs> and it was like, watch out or right, me and my mates will be grabbing you and stuffing your head down the toilet. And I have never been so scared in my life and I've never had that experience since. But that was one of the very few jobs I've had in corporate. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I thought you only heard about those sorts of women in, like, movies. You, you were like talking... Like the Cuckoo's Nest, for instance. Nurse Ratchet sounded very similar. Well, you were talking about how important teachers are in yeah. sort of setting the, setting the tone and, and a love of learning. And same with our managers, particularly early on our, in our careers. And unfortunately, 
some people can be threatened, which is really mm. uncomfortable. My first manager, Nicole Crivelli at Coca-Cola, she was awesome, awesome. And um, yeah, to, to this day, I'm thankful and grateful that I had a really positive entry into the corporate environment. Yeah, I have to say my, after that, I went and worked in newspapers and my boss, I was a sales rep and my boss was fantastic. I mean, we were like her children. She looked after all of us. We all used to socialise together. She was the, the most nurturing and fabulous woman and I'll, I'll never forget it. And I, and I think it's possibly part of why I do what, I, what I'm doing with She's the Boss is, is people like her. Okay, so talk to me about running your own business and having a life. Are you finding, you know, that juggle? Do you have set hours? Do you find that because you love what you do, you're doing it day and night whenever you feel like, or have you structured time to work? It's interesting, and I suppose it's drifted a little during the um, the coronavirus, but yeah. nominally, yes, Monday to Friday, I feel different to a weekend. Um, yeah. I tend to do activities like um, meditation and journaling and uh, exercise in the mornings. So that's, I find that I need to build those into the early part of the day so they don't... Every day? So those are your weekday things? Yeah, that's right. So, and I've got a couple of dogs that I walk and um, all that sort of stuff. So I usually sit down, um, this will sound terrible, but sort of 9, 9.30. Um, but no, no, we're having a 10 a.m. I had a 10 a.m. meeting this morning and I was in the shower at 9.30 just going, <laughs> oops, I better get ready. So I get it. <laughs> what I've found, and um, going back to when I first started in my business, what I found after working in the corporate sector is I was so much more exhausted doing my own work because there wasn't the distraction and so whenever I do sit down you know I actually work and um, yep. so you can I found uh, I find you can compress work into a shorter period of time now I don't have kids uh, or a husband to worry about so you know I've got I've got more <laughs> I don't want to say lucky you that's, uh... <laughs> I've got more freedom from that perspective but um, yeah I tend to be routine based I've also um Part of the work I do on behavioural science is habits and personal effectiveness. So I've written a book called The How of Habits as well. So I'm very... I think I need to go and buy all your <laughs> books, actually. They all sound like things I need to know about. But I, I'm a huge fan of creating habits and, and, and a big proponent of trying to break some bad ones, which I'm not so good at. I'm good at the good ones. <laughs> well, I really do think habits are the cornerstone of a healthy and happy life because if you have the, the good things in play, then, you know, you, you don't have to worry. You can, as much as you can put on autopilot that is good, then you take a lot of the decision fatigue out of your day because it's sort of all set and forget. And I don't have to yeah. think about I don't have to think about whether I will exercise. It's really I, I just do it as a default. Yeah. yeah. So um, so I am quite a routine based person. Not not everyone is. And then depending on I suppose what's on in work, I can find myself either finishing at sort of four thirty or I can finish it. 6.30, it just sort of depends. I can sometimes right, I do... Right, but you're not working through till 11 o'clock every night or doing anything like that. My perspective, yeah. Jules, on business is that I'm in business not for the business to run my life. I, um, yeah, I take great pleasure in the work I do, but it's a pleasure to do the work. I don't want to be beholden to 
beholden to the work. I'm, I'm 100% with you. I, I absolutely love what I do, but I absolutely love lying on the sofa and doing nothing rather than <laughs> going for walks and things. But I will have to do that as that's one of the new habits I need to create. It's all self-care, all right. Jules. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So talk to me about one quirky fact that you that, that you might be able to share with us. And, I mean, again, you don't have to, but I just feel like some really interesting things come out when people, when I ask that question. My quirky fact is that I've feared for my life three times. What? What happened? Okay. Experience number one was um, unfortunately in an earthquake in Kobe. So that was, I think, in 95. I was only in... Where's, in, where's Kobe? Oh, sorry, Kobe in Japan. Oh, right. Near Kyoto. So I was on a university trip in 95 and so we were caught up in the um, in the earthquake. So that was a fear of not knowing what to do and not being able to run away from something because unlike... You can't run away from... Yes, I had one. I was in Bali last year when the ground... I was so excited by it though, but it didn't last very long. <laughs> well... And I wasn't in a multi-storey building. Yeah, that's right. It's um, a very unnerving feeling. So that was the, the first It was time. the rolling of the ground. I, it was really weird. You could almost see rolls going through the ground. Yeah. Uh, so I've been, I have subsequently been to, ch- to Christchurch and it was the year after the Christchurch Christ quake and I was sitting in a, a lounge chair in the hotel and I thought, oh, it's one of those massage chairs. <laughs> <laughs> and then... <laughs> And then I realised, and it sort of did bring back horrible memories of um, oh, yeah, the Japanese earthquake. So, so that was experience number one. Experience number two, I was <laughs> in Africa doing a, a game park walk. And right. we, we were out, and it was like 10, 10Ks. You, you walk a long way. And the people in front of me, because we're in single file, they sort of, they started jogging. And I thought, oh, we must be, you know, going to look at a giraffe or a zebra. <laughs> <laughs> and then I looked again at them and they had such sheer terror in their faces. Oh and then God. they started bolting and running for their lives. And I didn't know what we were running f- from, but I, I started to run. And then my knees absolutely wobbled and I fell, on the, I fell on the ground. Yeah. And then this elephant goes, <laughs> Stop! Oh, my goodness. And all I could think of and... I've never done an, uh, an elephant impression before. Um, all, I, all I could think of was, you know, in the movies, it's the person that falls down that gets squashed. Trampled on. Trampled on. Anyway, the elephant really was as surprised as we were to come across each other and it ended up going in the opposite direction. But So we, we got to safety and, my God, we've never laughed like that before because it was that was hysteria it was hysteria Bordering on hysteria Absolute oh my hysteria. god we've just because i tell you the walk just back, escaped with our lives the walk back to camp you have never seen anyone so vigilant because you, you do become a little bit blasé it's like you're walking through a you know the, a park faulkner park or something and then you're like oh my goodness we are very low on the totem pole of who can who's going to survive in this wilderness um, so that was the second experience of my life, uh, feeling life under threat. And the third experience, Jules, was commuting into the city in, when I was working in corporate and thinking, God, everyone's so miserable and I don't want to continue this. <laughs> I don't want to continue <laughs> working in a corporate environment. So I started to fear for what my life was if I continued on the path 
of working the job. Oh, you're a wise woman, aren't you? you? <laughs> <laughs> to be able to look at it that way and go, look, I need to make some changes yeah. is really good. Okay, the, the last bit, this is just silly stuff um, because I'm obsessed with my phone. Are there any useful apps other than, you're not allowed to say email or banking, but are there any useful apps? Do you, are you a phone person? No. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm a big phone person. So I use um, Twitter and LinkedIn probably. So Twitter for input, Facebook, uh, sorry, not Facebook, LinkedIn more for output. I tend to publish yep. more on um, um, face, um, keep saying Facebook, LinkedIn. And Aura, I've got an Aura ring. I don't know if you... Well, what's Aura? It's... Um, All right, it, one of those mood, like a mood ring. Well, <laughs> not so much yeah. a mood ring, but it, it does track your sleep and it tracks your exercise and movement. And, um, uh, yeah, things like body temperature and things. Is that A-U-R-A It's O-U-R-A. O-U-R-A. I love when people create new words that we don't know. Aura. Right. And that's probably the app that I keep track of because, for instance, it will adjust... It gives you a state of readiness every day after it's monitored your sleep. And it says, oh, well, you should try and push it today or have a lighter day and, and those sorts of things. So it's a good, oh, cali- it's a good calibration because um, otherwise I could find myself in a pattern of just making sure I did exercise rather than what sort of exercise and how hard and what intensity should I do, for instance. Right. Wow. Amazing. And I'm guessing the answer is probably no to the next one. But do you have games or do anything that's just sort of silly on your phone? Words with friends? No, I don't. Candy crush? No, I I don't. I think staring at screens all day, I do enough of, I suppose. The only thing I would tend to watch is YouTube clips. I'm at the moment renovating an RV, a little van. To, Are you? to try and drive, How cool is that? to go on the road when we can go back on the road. And so yeah. I'm going deep on RV film, uh, clips on YouTube and I'm starting to think, publish. How big is an RV? Is that the one that's got beds and a lounge room and a kitchen in it kind of Not thing? Not that big. Mine's, I think, 19 foot or 5.7 metres long. And it's got, it has got that's a it, kitchen, what? it's got a, a um, shower and toilet and it's got um, beds. And you, you fitted it out, so you're renovating it? I'm refurbing it. It was already fitted, but it was a bit manky. So I'm, I'm doing some love. I've recarpeted. I've put in a new um, skylight. I've, you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Wow, I'm process. so jealous. That's just a dream. That would be fantastic to do. Well, Bree, thank you so, so much for this conversation. I have absolutely loved it. Um, and you've taught me a whole lot of stuff. So I'm definitely going to your website to download some of your free resources again. Do you want to just tell everyone um, your website address one more time? Maybe spell it just in case anyone sure. gets it wrong. It's Bree Williams, B-R-I Williams dot com dot A-U. And they'll find me there. You can even Google me and you'll possibly uh, you'll find me through that also. Well, you have just been an amazing guest and I've learned lots. So thank you very, very much. Absolute pleasure, Jules. I hope you've enjoyed this She's the Boss chat episode. It was great to have you here. If you want to stay in touch, you might also like some of the other things that we've got going on with She's the Boss. Firstly, I've got the She's the Boss show, which is on Ticker TV. Now, you can watch that either on tickertv.com.au or you can download the Ticker app from any of the app stores. So Apple and Android, and they've got an app that is for your phone for your iPad or tablet and for the smart TV. Or you could join us for our free Zoom lunches for female founders that we hold online. 
The best way to do any of these things really is go to she'stheboss.com.au and on there you can register for the lunches and I've also got links to the website. So either way, I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm really enjoying digging down and getting down to the nitty gritty with these women and I hope you'll join me for the next episode.